Luke chapter number 7 tonight, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know that I'm really going to tell you much of anything you've not heard before, but I trust that the Lord has this message for the hour. He's laid it on our hearts, and I trust that maybe He'll show us some things that will encourage us in the way. The verse uh, 1 reads this way, Now, when He had ended all His sayings in the audience of the people, He entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear unto him, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they sought, besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. When he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, Go, and he goeth. And to another, Come, and he cometh. And to my servant, Do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turned him about, and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the privileges to be in your house. I pray that uh, the Spirit of God would have liberty, that we would yield unto him liberty tonight by opening our hearts and allowing ourselves to be stirred and moved and convinced and convicted and drawn closer unto You. Let us leave every area of our life open. Let us not put up fences in any area, but Father, let us lay ourselves wholly upon the altar to You tonight that You might do an eternal work for Your glory. Lord, we love You. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When this centurion... Sin's word. And as you read Matthew's account of this and Luke's account of this, you find absolutely no contradictions because there ain't no contradictions in the King James Bible. Somebody say amen to that. But you do find some interesting distinctions. For instance, uh, in Luke's account, Luke describes the centurion as having sent people unto Jesus. In Matthew's account, it almost reads as though the centurion himself came to Jesus. You might say, well, preacher, uh, why does it read that way? Well, because in Matthew's account, the centurion, though he had not come to Jesus, the messengers are not in view, and the words, they are his words, and so they're viewed as being directly from him, though they were spoken through messengers that were sent. Also, we find that in Matthew's account, he says, come and heal my servant. And yet we find in Luke's account and in Matthew's account, when Jesus gets there, He says, I didn't intend on you to come here. And you might say, well, preacher, that seems strange. That seems at least contradictory, if not a contradiction. The difference being this, that He sent messengers that said, go and see if Jesus will heal my servant. And they began to speak on His behalf and say, Lord, you need to come to this man's house and heal this man's servant. It wasn't the centurion himself that had asked that. But the Bible tells us that whenever this centurion, he sends word, his servant is dying, the Lord hears that this man's servant is dying, and he approaches unto the house. And as he's right there near the house, the centurion sends out servants to say, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. All you have to do is speak a word, and that'll be sufficient to heal my servant. 
What I'm fascinated with is what the Lord says, what the Bible says in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, He marveled at him, and turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. You'll find only a handful of times in the earthly ministry ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ that He ministered to and did a miracle for a Gentile. Two such occasions are found here in Luke chapter 7. The centurion's servant and the widow woman of Nain, her son, is raised from the dead. There were a few others, uh, but it was not a common thing for the Lord Jesus to minister unto Gentiles. Two reasons for that. One, because He was in the borders of Israel. And it was mostly Jews that were in the borders of Israel. But another reason is because one of the distinct and preeminent aspects of His ministry was as the shepherd to the lost sheep of Israel. And so His focus was always on the Jews. And yet, there were these gleaming moments in which the simple Gentile faith of a person was so overwhelming that it gained the attention of the Master and brought about change, mighty change, in the life of that person. This is one such occasion. The Bible says something unique, that Jesus marveled at him. You'll only find, you'll find that word marvel a lot of times in your Bible. You'll find the word that it comes from. And sometimes they use the word wondered. But when it says that he marveled, there's only two times that it ever says that Jesus marveled at anything. Now stop and think about that for a moment. He's the creator. When you marvel at something, you're amazed at something you ain't never seen before. Amen? Go to Walmart sometime. You'll see things marvelous to behold. You'll see, hey, listen, I, and I might get on some toes here, but that's okay. I ain't seen you at the Walmart like this, so if, if I offend you, just don't be offended. Amen? Perfect peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. We'll practice a little bit of that. But, uh, listen, I understand if it's 2 a.m., and you're sick, and you got the flu, and you're just showing up for some NyQuil, that you might wear your house slippers. I, I'm not too uppity to wear my house slippers at 2 a.m. if I'm sick and I'm going to get some Pepto-Bismol. I ain't too uppity to wear my house slippers. But at some point, when it's 5 o'clock in the middle of the day and you show up in your pajamas, I mean, I ain't saying you got to be in formal wear, but I'm just saying there ought to be more between you and the world, then thin cotton and a drawstring. You go to Walmart, man, you'll see some things that you'll marvel at, you'll wonder at. You'll look at and think, I ain't never seen nothing like that. What could make the Creator of the world step back and say, wow. Only two times that the Lord Jesus ever marveled at anything. In Mark chapter number 6, when He's in Nazareth, the Bible says... He marveled at their unbelief. And here in Luke chapter number 7 and in Matthew 15, we're told that when he saw the centurion man's belief, his faith, that the Lord marveled at it. The Lord was astounded that this man, who is supposed to be alienated from the covenant of God, who is supposed to be uh, trapped in the bondage of pagan darkness, is exhibiting a greater, pure, more potent faith than anyone else in the land of Israel. 
You know, when you look at what this man says, what he asks for, none of them are things that we would count marvelous. He certainly was not the only one to ask for someone he cared for to be healed. He wasn't the only one to come to Jesus and seek help. Nor was he the only one to believe that there was power in his word. But there's something that as the Lord looks at this man's faith, that the Lord found marvelous. I want you to notice three things that I believe were marvelous to the Lord because the Holy Ghost features them prominently in this passage. Three marvelous qualities about this man's faith. I want you to notice first off the means of faith is something this man had a great grasp upon. I think sometimes we make faith more complicated than it has to be if you want to be fairly honest. I think we have equated biblical faith with the idea with uh, uh, with a resolved conviction about a matter. I think sometimes we view faith as being something where we have to be impassioned and we have to be resolute and we have to be determined and we have to convince ourselves and convince everybody else that something's going to transpire. And I don't think that has anything in the world to do with biblical faith. As we talked about this morning, there was a man that brought his son to Jesus and the Lord asked him, says, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe. Help mine unbelief. I think sometimes we have a tendency to view faith as the flexing of spiritual muscle by super-spiritual Christians that are somehow a cut above the rest of us. I think sometimes we view it as though it is the manifestation of their deep piety that they have faith. But I don't believe this man viewed faith in this way. I want you to notice that there's two things that he saw as being necessary to approach unto the Lord by faith. And there's an interesting thing. We lay it side by side. I want you to notice what the elders of the Jews said about this man, and then I want you to notice what he said about himself. Look back at verse 3. The Bible says, And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying, listen carefully, that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. I find that fascinating because what they say is this, this man is worthy of a miracle because he loves God's people and he loves God's house. Now let me tell you something, I believe we ought to love God's people. I believe every Holy Ghost born again, Bible-believing Christian, if they are sold out to the Lord, I do believe they're going to love God's people. You won't always love what God's people do. You won't always love how God's people act. They won't always love how you act and what you do. But you will have a kinship. You will have a heart-knit relationship with the people of God if you know the Lord and are right with the Lord. Let me say I believe that people all love the house of God. I believe we ought to love the house of God more than any other location that we can possibly imagine. I think a lot of folks that don't love the house of God is because they're never there. Uh, Listen, I I found this. You'll occasionally find people that go to church and somebody says something, they get cross, they get hurt, they get out. I know it happens. But listen, the church ain't perfect. But it's the Lord's. And He loves it. And He gave Himself for it. And it ain't going to be perfect until it gets to heaven and then it won't be a church anymore. But if it's good enough for the Lord, it ought to be good enough for you and me. We ought to love the house of God. But let me say this, that our love for God's people and our love for God's house are not the two things that faith is predicated on. 
They said, because of this, because he loves Israel, he loves God's people, because he loves the synagogue, he loves God's house, because he's a faithful man, because he's been kind to the interests of God, because of that, they said, he is worthy, Lord, of your presence and of your power. What does he say? The Bible says, verse 6, Then Jesus went with them. When he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. He goes on to say it again in verse 7, Wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Let me say that this man understood that the means of faith did not involve super spirituality. It involved two things. First, it involves an attitude of humility. Uh, for us to have faith, listen carefully, we have to admit and acknowledge that our problems are beyond the scope of our help. We wouldn't be coming to God and looking for help if we thought we could handle it ourselves. And I think sometimes we view faith as being the reward of those that are super spiritual. But I think when we read in the Word of God, faith is very often manifest as a resource for those that are weak and that have no strength in of themselves. In other words, you don't ever find faith being wielded like a sword by those that are strong. Instead, you find it being grabbed and clung to uh, like a life preserver by those who are weak and sinking. And I think as long as you and I view faith as being some expression or manifestation of the super-Christian, we're going to be very reticent to exercise faith in the Lord and His promises. This is the reason you'll see a lot of people sometimes, they'll say things like this, well, I'm just not as good a Christian as them. Well, first off, you don't know that. You don't know what's going on in their life. You don't have a clue what's going on in their life. You might see them for a few hours at church. You might see them a little bit in your own private life. But you don't have a clue what's going on in their life. And beyond that, let me say this. Anybody that thinks they're a great Christian probably is not one. Now that's not to say there are not universal qualities and, and markers of a godly lifestyle. Of course there are. But it's to say that one of the chief among those is humility itself. And as long as we think we can stand, we're in danger of falling. They said, this man's worthy. This man said, I'm not worthy. But that's why I'm sending for you. I'm not sending for you because I deserve you or because I'm worthy. Lord, I'm sending for you for your mercy, for your grace, because you're the only one that can help me. You're the only one that can comfort me. Listen, if you're waiting until you become perfect to seek the Lord, you ain't never going to seek Him. And if you ever could become perfect, and you can't, and I can't, but if you ever could, you wouldn't need Him. That's all right. Let that roll around a little bit. I believe you'll agree with it by the time it settles down. If you was perfect, you wouldn't need Him. We got this thing flipped around. We say to ourselves, we would have been right along with the Pharisees. We would have been saying, hey, this man eats with publicans and with sinners. And Christ would be saying to us, listen, I came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And as long as we view ourselves as some super spiritual individual that's worthy of God's help and of God's grace, you can rest assured we're not going to receive it or be able to implement it. And as long as we stand at an arm's length from God because we think we're not worthy, no, you're not worthy, I'm not worthy, ain't none of us worthy. And that's the very thing that makes us a candidate for God's grace. And that's the very thing that makes us a customer of God's faith. 
I see that we need an attitude of humility, but then I see that we need an asking heart. Uh, some of y'all grew up in homes where uh, there's several of you kids, and when it was time to eat, they called for supper, and if you didn't get there quick enough, there might not be anything. And when you got there, you better ask for something to eat, because if you didn't ask, you'd go hungry. We was at the restaurant today. We went down to the Cracker Barrel to eat some breakfast. I knew I'd get an amen there. <laughs> Did you know Cracker Barrel will substitute the country fried chicken for any other meat on the country boy breakfast? So don't tell me you ain't never come to church and learn anything valuable. Because the country boy has them three eggs. Not two. The three eggs and the fried apples. Now, I ain't got no interest in fried apples. But I get double hash browns. It comes with them grits. And I don't even really like grits. And I don't even eat grits. But the grits are my safety. Because they guarantee I ain't going to walk away hungry. Amen? And I get it with biscuits. And I ain't against cornbread. I believe in cornbread. But if I'm eating breakfast, I want biscuits. And so we went down to the Cracker Barrel and we had several folks with us. We were sitting there and we went around and everybody ordered their food. And she, the girl started at one place and she went down to this person, to this person, to this person, to this person. And she got done and she went and uh, she went to put our order in. And directly, my little boy, Lawrence, he, he orders for himself. He's been doing that I, I, forever. He's been doing that since he could talk and maybe a little before then. And directly, he looked up at us and he said... She didn't take my order. I said, she didn't? He said, no. And then his mama, she's mean. She said, well, you ain't going to get nothing to eat then. She's like that, man. She's mean. You all see her at church and she's all nice and sweet, but you don't see the Cracker Barrel side of her. And uh, <laughs> he said, I'm not going to get anything to eat. I said, calm down. We're going to get you something to eat. But I looked at him I said, why didn't you ask? When she came through, why didn't you ask? He said, I just got distracted. I worry that he's even my son, if we're being honest. Because I ain't never been so distracted that I ain't ordered food. <laughs> but it, it taught him and us at the table a good principle. You want something, you better speak up. You better ask. They ain't mind readers. If you want something, you better ask. You know, this is a basic scriptural principle. The Bible says, ask and you shall receive. It's emphatic on the ask and on the seek and on the knock. And the Lord wants to drive it home, so He then goes on to say, Whosoever asketh receiveth, whosoever seeketh findeth, whosoever knocketh it shall be opened unto him. You say, well, preacher, what if I don't ask? What if I don't seek? What if I don't knock? Then you ain't going to get nothing. James says, we have not because we ask not. Faith requires an asking heart. I think there's a lot of us waiting around for God to do stuff for us we ain't asked Him for. And God does do a lot of stuff that we don't ask Him for. But if we want to guarantee that God is going to give us the good graces of His will in a matter, we ought to ask Him. Because there are things that we could have that we won't have if we won't ask. This man understood the importance of asking. He could have sat around and thought, I'm an important person. Surely Jesus will hear that my, centur- or that my servant is ill. Or it would have been a lot simpler to ask. He could have said, well, surely someone will take up my portion and take up my part and go to the Savior and let Him know. But it was a lot simpler just to ask. He could have said to himself, surely the God of heaven will send some prophet or some teacher or some preacher 
But it was a lot simpler just to ask. I think there's a lot of times we get stubborn. Sometimes it's because we're negligent. But sometimes we just flat out don't ask for things that we desire and seek for God's help about. Listen to what the Hebrews writer said in Hebrews 11.6. He said, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The primary function and manifestation of faith is an asking heart. It's coming to the Lord and seeking His help. If you want His help, ask for His help. There will be a lot of things that He does in life for you that you probably don't even think to ask and wouldn't even know to ask, even if you knew what you was missing out on. But rest assured that one of the greatest ways to exercise and implement faith is to ask God for things, trusting that He is able So I believe this man, his faith was marvelous because he understood the means of faith. Faith is not some reward given to the super spiritual, but it's a resource for those of us that are weak that cannot see to our own needs. And at the end of the day, none of us can. But then let me say that I believe this man understood the machinations of faith. Interesting thing takes place. The Lord comes to the man's house. And the man sends servants out to meet him. I do not know how far that he was away, but the Bible says it wasn't far. It was evidently close enough that either someone had run down the road because Jesus was coming that way and let him know, or it was close enough that the man could look out his window and see Jesus coming. But one way or another, the man's not far, and he sends servants to go out unto him. And this is what he says. He says, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldest enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Notice the next thing he says. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. I believe this man understood how faith works in two very basic ways. I want you to notice that I believe he understood the source of faith's power. The source of faith's power, in his mind, was the Word of Christ, the Word of God. He says, Lord, you don't have to come out and make some big show. You don't have to come under my roof. You don't have to do some big fancy incantation. You don't have to perform some great showy miracle. All you have to do, Lord, is just speak a word and that is enough. It reminds you of the story of Naaman in the Old Testament. Naaman, the Syrian general who was a leper. And uh, word reaches his ears that there's a prophet named Elisha in the land of Israel and that Elisha is uh, powerful enough, mighty enough to be able to heal him. And so Naaman gathers his royal troop together and they set out the uh, door and they've got letters from uh, their king and they give those letters to the king of Israel. The king of Israel sends Naaman to the house of Elisha. And Elisha rolls up to, or uh, Naaman rolls up to Elisha's driveway and he's got the royal procession before him. And he gets off of his horse and he goes and he stands and the servant of Elisha comes out to meet them. And the servant looks at Naaman. He says, this is what the man of God said to do. Go down to the Jordan River and dip seven times. And on the seventh time, you're going to be made clean. And Naaman was furious. He said, I thought he would come out and speak something over me. He says, could I not have stayed in Syria? The rivers of Arphad and Damascus are far greater than the river of Jordan. 
In other words, you know what he was upset about? He was upset because Elisha didn't make a big to-do over him. He wanted the red carpet. He wanted the royal treatment. He didn't want help. He wanted a big fuss. And it made him mad. And one of his servants says to him, Lord, if he had asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it. So why won't you just do some simple thing? He goes down to the river, and he dips in the river. And on the seventh time, he comes up, and he's clean. His skin's like a child. You know, sometimes we want God to make a big show of things. But at the end of the day, it's not about that. It's about God meeting our needs, fixing our problems, answering in a way that He sees fit. He understood it wasn't about some great show. It was about the simplicity of Christ's Word. And so He says, all you have to do is speak a word. Biblical faith is predicated on, based upon, sourced in, founded upon, and inseparably connected to the Word of God. This is something ironic, uh, uh, ironically of all things, that the word of faith, quote-unquote, movement has greatly perverted. The word of faith, that's the charismatic movement that says, well, you just speak a word in faith and it becomes something. Well, they got one thing right. Things do become something when a word is spoken. The difference is, it ain't my word and it ain't your word, it's God's word. And they're actually trying to deify man and put man in the place of God and make man the author of God's Word because only the Word of God has the ability to move and minister in such a way. Faith cometh by hearing. Paul said, in hearing by the Word of God. Listen, faith that's not based upon and founded upon the truth of God's Word is fantasy. Nothing more. You can believe something's going to happen all you want. But if God ain't said it's going to happen, you don't have much of a reason to believe it's going to happen. Faith is based upon God's promises. And so as soon as the Lord Jesus sent word that He would come and heal this man, then the centurion knew that there was no question that the miracle would take place. And he says, just speak in a word, that's all that's needed. He understood the source of faith's power, the word, and the simplicity of faith's process. All it took was the Lord speaking. I think that if we just get... I think sometimes we get so focused on our problems that we make them something they're not. And we we stir ourselves up to expectations of how God ought to work and what God ought to do and how He ought to perform whatever He performs. And then we grow discontented if it don't happen just the way that we anticipate it. And I think sometimes if we would begin when we have our problems approaching it in faith, and say, Lord, I don't know what I need, but I know I need You, and I know I need Your wisdom, and I know I need Your will. And Lord, however You see fit to work in this situation, that's fine by me. Then I think we'd be a lot more contented. And I also think we would be a lot better equipped to see the hand of God in things. I think a lot of times God does stuff, and because we're we're so jazzed up to see Him do it a certain way, when He does it different than that, we don't recognize that it was Him. This man understood that faith was not about some great manifestation of power and of show, but rather it was about the truth of God's Word. If Christ would speak a word, that was enough. And that it was about getting the man healed. And that's exactly what he desired. I believe this man understood the means of faith, an attitude of humility and an asking heart. I believe he understood the machinations of faith, the source of faith's power is the Word of God, and the simplicity of faith's process is the way of God. But then I think, and I'm done, that this man understood something of the might of faith. He understood what faith was capable of. 
Two things, evidently, he believed that faith could do. First, he believed that faith could solicit God's attention. He believed that if he in faith sent servants unto Jesus and made known to Jesus his problem, that the Lord would listen. And that's exactly what the Lord did. You know, the Bible talks about the psalmist says that a broken and a contrite heart, the Lord will not refuse. If we'll come to the Lord in faith and in humility, not boasting about why God owes us this and owes us that, but rather coming saying, Lord, you don't owe me anything and I'm not worthy of anything, but I've come for your grace and I've come for your mercy and I've come for your help. I think we'll find a ready audience with the Lord. Sort of reminds you about David and Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. If Mephibosheth had demanded an audience with King David, he probably would have gotten execution. But because he in humility was living down in Lodabar, and when Ziba came down with the card of David and wanted to bring him, and he brings Mephibosheth in before David, Mephibosheth says, why is such a dead dog as I being given favor with the king? He got an audience with David. If we'll approach him in humility, faith has the power to get God's attention. Now, God is always paying attention to His people. But I found this through raising kids. There's a difference between attention and attention. Amen? It's amazing. Some of you all know, parents. Some of you all that aren't or are or, or older, your kid's been raised for 20 years. You think you know, but I'm about to explain it to you. <laughs> the TV era, man, kids have two different kinds of attention. This is probably true of adults, too. I am fairly convinced that if the right TV program is on and my boy is sitting there watching it, that there could be some... A rocket ship could crash through our living room right behind him and he would be totally and completely unaware. And you might ask, you might say, Lawrence, did you see that? And he'd say, yeah, it was a rocket ship. And just be watching, you know. And my little boy, even Schofield, and, and listen, y'all all super spiritual. I would never put my kids in front of the TV. Well, you ain't raising my kids. And you ain't got to do the things I got to do. And sometimes you need a break. Say, you think that's good for him? No, but it sure does me a lot of good. (laughs) Keeps a little sanity. We're sitting at the restaurant today, and my wife took out her phone. We don't never do this. But she took out her phone and put on a little TV program, and the baby just sat there and watched it the whole time. These kids, man, they love that TV. And they have the ability to tune out. And they have an awareness but they're not necessarily giving their attention to something. Well, listen, God is always deeply aware of everything that's going on in our lives. But you know what I want? When I say to my boy, pay attention to me, I want him to turn, I want him to look at me with his God-given eyeballs, and I want him to answer me. I want an interaction with him. I want to know not just that he knows, but that I know that he knows. And God's always aware of what's going on in our lives. But when we're seeking God's grace and help, it's not so much about making Him aware, it's about making us aware that He's aware. It's about us having the conviction and being convinced of the fact that God is attending to our problems and that God is intervening. Faith has the ability to solicit God's attention, number two. And finally, faith has the ability to elicit God's action. There's a lot I don't understand about prayer. I'll be honest, I think I understand less about prayer than probably any other activity of the Christian life. And it seems like the more I study it, the more I practice it, the more I I, I learn by experience, it seems like the less I know. It seems like, uh, just uh, almost like quicksand, the more you kind of fight to get a bearing on it, the deeper you sink. (laughs) 
and you feel like, well, I, I, I understand less today than I did yesterday. There's a lot I don't understand about prayer. I don't understand how we could have a sovereign God whose will could be moved by prayer. But I believe that we do. Because my Bible teaches it. I ain't got to understand everything about God for Him to be God. In fact, I find that things go a lot better sometimes when I don't understand everything of what He's doing. Sometimes He has to keep me in the dark just to keep me out of the way. But I, I've, I've found this to be true. The effectual, i found it to be true. I haven't just read it and know it's true. I have read it and know it's true. But I've also found it to be true. You know, David said, once have, has, hath it been said, twice have I heard that power belongeth unto God. What he's saying is, I, I read it once in the Word of God, but then I've seen it to be so. Well, listen, I, I, I know this to be true because I've seen it in God's Word, but I've also found it to be true. Once hath it been said, but twice have I heard that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. There's a lot I don't understand, but I understand prayer works. Don't understand why it works. I don't understand how it works, really, if we're being honest. I know about the various, I know about, uh, about Thanksgiving, and I know about supplication, and I know about praise, and I can give you the five-point definition, theologian's definition of what prayer is. But there's a lot about prayer that I just don't understand. But I know this, that God has chosen prayer as the means of executing and exercising His influence and will in this world. I don't know that we're arresting God's will. I don't know that God's will could be arrested or bent or co-opted. But I do believe that God has chosen that through the prayers of His people, He would interact with this world, ministering to us and moving and manipulating the world around us. And I know that this man, when he sent word, and when he said, Lord, come and heal, the Lord came and healed. There's a few times in the Word of God that the Bible says that Jesus stopped when he heard someone speak. For instance, whenever uh, the blind men cry out and say, uh, Hosanna, David, thou son of David. And they cry out unto him. The Bible says that Jesus, he would have passed by, but he stopped. I don't know. Listen, you say, well, what if they hadn't hollered out? Well, I guess he would have passed by. Said he would have. Say, preacher, what did it do when they cried out? It made him stop. Now, once you begin to think about the big principles behind that, the will of God, the will of Christ, the determinative nature of God, it's going to bring about some questions. Does this mean that they co-opted or does it mean they somehow overran the will of God? I don't know. But I know when they cried, He stopped. And I know when I cry to Him, He stops. I don't understand all that. I probably won't till I get to heaven. But I do believe this, that faith and the prayer of faith has the ability to elicit God's action, His intervention in a matter. It avails things. It overcomes things. It causes... Listen, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And it doesn't have to be the prayers of some super-Christian proving themselves as some great and grand, deep, mysterious prayer warrior. This man was a Roman centurion. He probably didn't know much about God, but he knew that Jesus was the real deal. And he knew He was the only place for help. And he knew, though he himself was not worthy, 
that Jesus was gracious enough to come not out, not out of, of obligation, but out of mercy. And so he cries out and he sends for help and he says, go get Jesus. He and he alone can make the difference. That's the kind of faith that God marveled at. A faith so simple, but so pure. A faith without all the pomp and circumstance. A faith that wanted only God's will and God's intervention. And a faith that had for its anchor only God's Word and God's promise. Listen, you might say, well, preacher, what am I going to do with this message tonight? I hope it will make you pray. I hope if there's some things in your life that you're struggling with, and I know there's people in this room, you're praying for kids and family members and, and brothers and sisters and loved ones. I hope that this centurion's faith will exhort you and challenge you to exercise that same kind of simple faith. Some of you all have needs far beyond what anybody can do or change, but they're not beyond what God can do. And I hope you'll quit sitting on the sideline because you think you ain't good enough to ask the Lord, or because you think you're so unworthy that God would never answer. And I hope you'll swallow your pride, that you'll buffet your flesh, that you'll mortify the deeds of your body, and that you'll just come and in humble contrition say, Lord, I know I ain't worthy. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, as broken as I am, as helpless as I am, as messed up as I am, I need your help. And so I've come, Lord, asking you to do what I cannot do. Not out of obligation. Not because I'm worthy. But, Lord, by your grace and by your mercy, I cast myself on your care and ask you to work in my life.